Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What up? It's the Crossover Pod Friday edition. I'm Howard Beck, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. My guest today, great writer, veteran NBA scribe, Sean Devaney. Sean, uh, you may know his work from Heavy.com and, of course, long time for the sporting news. He's got a really great new book out. It's called The History of the NBA in 12 Games. It's 12 chapters, each focused on one game that made the NBA what it is today. It is not the usual approach. These are not the biggest highlights, the biggest scores, the biggest stats or whatever. It is about moments that shape the NBA. It's a totally unique approach and Sean's a great writer. We will dive into some of those moments, including the game when the Jordan rules were essentially born and the bad boys were born. Uh, The game that signaled the end of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's run in Milwaukee, the first big superstar trade demand, essentially. The game that defined tanking in the 80s and led to the lottery. Moments like that, very cool. We will discuss all that and lots more. Before we get to that, two reminders. Please rate, review, subscribe to The Crossover wherever you get your podcasts. Hit me with all your feedback on Twitter, at Howard Beck. And don't forget, SI and Triumph Books have collaborated on a really cool new book about the history of the Lakers called The Greatest Show on Earth. I was honored to write the forward for the book. It's available for pre-order with a 30% discount. Go to triumphbooks.com, search for Greatest Show on Earth. There's also a direct link in the summary of this podcast. Or go to bit.ly, B-I-T backslash Lakers75. And then use the discount code Lakers30. That will get you the 30% discount. 
Again, triumphbooks.com or use the bit.ly link or find it in the summary of this podcast. Go check it out. Wonderful writing by some of the greatest writers in the history of Sports Illustrated about some of the greatest players in the history of the Lakers. Uh, Phenomenal book. Go check it out. Um, Great for Lakers fans. Great for fans of just even great sports writing. Never too early to do your holiday shopping. Okay, plugs aside, my conversation with Sean Devaney is coming up next. So stick around. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. Now very pleased to be joined by Sean Devaney. Sean, how are you, my friend? All right, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, we're uh, toward the end here of the first week of NBA training camps. A lot going on. Uh, as we record this, I think the Warriors had a game that was at some point in the dark this morning, um, though not where they were, just just here on the East Coast of the U.S. Um, I have no idea what happened in that game. I think James Wiseman went off. Uh, we'll, we'll catch up with that later. There's plenty going on around the league. Uh, maybe we'll touch on that a little bit toward the end of the pod. But I want to have you on because I want to talk about your new book, The History of the NBA in 12 Games. It's a very cool approach, uh, which I will let you explain in a second here. But so folks understand, it's the history of the NBA in 12 games. But this is not the obvious choices. This is not Wilt going for 100. This is not Michael's final shot against Utah. It's not Magic's baby hook. It's not Reggie 8 points, 9 seconds. It's not Bird versus Dominique in that uh, wild playoff game. It's not Willis Reed coming out of the tunnel. It is not the things you expect. Um, also, by the way, trying to tell the history of the NBA in 12 games is, is quite a challenge in itself. So um, why 12, Sean? Uh, why limit yourself to 12? And why this 12? And we will get to some of, of, of what did make the book. Well, you know, a 12-man roster, I guess it kind of made some sense. Uh, sure. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it, it's interesting because when you look back, you know, I, I think one thing about basketball and the NBA is that um, the, the history tends to get short shrift, you know, compared to certainly baseball history, football history. Um, but I think that's changing somewhat, you know, going back, I think, to uh, – uh, to Last Dance, I think had a big impact on that, and and maybe a little further back, Jack McMullen's book about about Bird and Magic. You know, I think there's been uh, a little more interest in in the history of the league. So uh, that was something that I really wanted to try to dig into and find a way to do it that was uh, accessible. You know, that is something that that you can come in and 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 read a chapter and get a sense of the history of the league in that era. So it starts with. Uh, the 24 second clock uh, in 1954, um, and and you know it's it's about that game, but then there's the, the whole chapter is about sort of where the league was at that time, uh, why they needed a 24 second clock, some of the characters. Danny Biazzoni is a fascinating character, was the owner of the Syracuse Nationals, um, so it's a lot about him in there. Uh, he's sort of as credited as, as the father of the 24 second clock. So you know, I wanted to kind of you know have that approach where um, you, you know, you've got a game and you can tell about the game, but you can also tell the context and why that game wound up being important uh, going into the future. So 
you know, that's that's how I approach it. That's how I kind of pick the games is is not like you say, not, you know, the 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 the, the ones that are the most memorable games, the, those games that, that that people talk about and that you see on hardwood classics. I want the games that kind of influenced where the league went from there. Uh, that's what I try to do. Uh, and that's what I love about uh, this book. I should also note, by the way, Sean is coming to us live from Springfield, Massachusetts. So uh, you are literally steeped in, surrounded by soaking in the history of the game uh, and, the, and the Hall of Fame in your in your backyard, along with, most importantly, the Dr. Seuss Park, which is yes. my personal favorite part of Springfield. Um, but this book, while not necessarily trying to focus on um, you know, the biggest statistical games, the biggest rivalry games, others that people would immediately call to mind when they think of like lists of the greatest games. This is not an attempt to be the greatest games. It's the most influential in some ways, but, but it still manages to pull in uh, a major Bill Russell moment, Kareem, Magic, Bird, Jordan, Kobe, Shaq, Dirk, LeBron, and Steph Curry. And so as I read through those names and I, and I realize that in some ways, okay, you just picked games that were influential in terms of the way the game developed, the way the league developed, more you know, important inflection points. You still pull in a bunch of the all-time greats and a nice uh, uh, sample or cross-section of them across the decades. Did you have to kind of, I don't know, uh, cross-reference to do that? Were you intentionally making sure that you got certain of these figures in there or did it just kind of happen organically as you were looking for some of these uh, important games. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think in in in, in some way, um, you know, the games that do involve Michael Jordan are are naturally going to be ones that that have more importance. But um, you know, I think if you take the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar game for for instance, the one that I picked was was March fourteenth, nineteen seventy five, when he's still playing in Milwaukee, uh, and just a couple days before that, Marv Albert. Uh, broke the news that Kareem had uh, requested a trade out of Milwaukee. Now he had done it. A Marv bomb. We had a Marv yes. bomb back it in the seventies. It was a 70s. Marv bomb. That's right. Yeah, and, and it was funny to read the Milwaukee papers. Oh, this this East Coast guy. He didn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, but but you know, it, of course, it was true. Um, and and I had talked to Kareem a lot about um, you know about how he handled his trade requests. Um, and 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 how he kind of kept it quiet because he launched the request in October. And it wasn't until March that it finally broke. It just so happened that they were playing the Lakers that night, um, and so it was sort of this whole confluence of things. And of course, we know what happened. You know, Kareem eventually gets traded uh, to the Lakers. The Knicks absolutely blew it. That he really wanted to go to the Knicks. The Knicks blew it in terms of uh, uh, putting together a deal that that, that could have uh, gotten Kareem to New York. Um, and, and, and so it's just that game, even though, you know, it's, it's just a March game and, and neither of the teams were all that good. Um, you know, that game sort of symbolized a lot of what was going on with Kareem in terms of getting him out of Milwaukee, uh, what wound up happening with the Lakers. Um, and, you know, the whole trade request thing, uh, you know, I remember talking to Kareem a couple of years ago when Anthony Davis was going through his, uh, his trade request stuff about, you know, why is this guy handling it this way? This is all wrong. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, certainly the Kevin Durant stuff, you know, it, it still echoes. Uh, so those are the kind of games that I was looking for. Um, you know, maybe not the, the obvious ones, like you say, but, but, but the ones that, um, that, that did sort of symbolize where things were and, and, and the way things changed after that. 
something else that you've done along the way here again, like there's, so there's one game from the 1950s. You alluded to it earlier, the first game with the 24 second clock, which obviously is a very important innovation for this game. Who knows uh, where basketball would be uh, if not for that back then. Uh, So that's the one game from the fifties. You have one from the sixties, one from the seventies. That was the Kareem uh, game. You just mentioned three from the eighties, three from the nineties, a couple, or excuse me, one from the early aughts and a couple from the 20 teens. Um, and so again, I think a nice spread of the eras. Uh, we'll get to a couple more of the ones that you did highlight. What were the toughest ones that you left out or how many did you start with? Because even if you're not necessarily trying to focus on the most statistically you know, gargantuan games or the biggest rivalry games or those kinds of, you're going for a different subset. I'm sure there were others that, you know, and when one way or another were also influential. So what, what were, before we get to some of the things you did cover, what were some of the ones that you wanted to get in there? Couldn't quite get. Yeah. Probably the big thing that, that, that the book doesn't have in it that I, I, I went back and forth on is, uh, is Spencer Haywood and, and um, you know, everything that, that, that he kind of went through to, uh, to get on the floor and, and the impact that had uh, the reason that I ultimately left that one on the cutting floor was, um, that it was, it was, it was very much a court battle, uh, you know, the, 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 legal system, not, not on the court. Uh, and, and, and because of that, I just, it, it kind of didn't fit the, uh, the spirit of the rest of it. Obviously, you know, he had such a huge impact on NBA history and what, what, what he did. Um, so, you know, that's, that's probably the big one is, is, uh, uh, and anytime, you know, you get a chance to talk to Spencer Hayward, or you have a reason to talk to him. It's always going to be fun. He's going to tell some stories. So I, I was kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted to get that in because I, I do think it's something that's important, and 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 he's such a great storyteller. But um, I just felt in the end that it was more uh, of a legal system thing rather than uh, rather than you know the game on the floor. Yeah. Uh, also, his stories, of course, been well told, including by our friends uh, uh, Gary yeah. Washburn and Mark Spears and Mark, recently yeah. in their book, which was I think two years ago. Now people should go. Mm-hmm. Check that out. Um, I also realized that I wasn't sure how to take this other than I'm freaking old. But of the 12 games you highlighted in your book that are this is NBA history. So automatically this makes it feel like this is reaching back a ways. And I was present at and covered three of these 12. Yeah, should have. It should have been four. <laughs> it should have been four. The one that I did not. Uh, one of the ones you highlight was in the 1998 All-Star Game in New York at Madison Square Garden. That is Kobe versus MJ, a a major moment as you know Kobe is trying to uh, not just uh, take the baton, but just like steal the baton and 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 uh, smack people around with it. Um, I was not at that game because that was my first year covering the Lakers for the LA Daily News, a famously cheap operation that did not send me to the All-Star <laughs> Game on my first season covering the Lakers, despite there being. Four Lakers in that game, Shaq, Kobe, Eddie Jones, and Nick Van Axel. Um, not that I'm still bitter about it or anything. So I did not cover that one. <laughs> I did not cover that one. However, um, I was at uh, the, the the last three uh, chapters of your book uh, includes the infamous Western Conference Finals game six, Sacramento and the Lakers, the... Uh, uh, infamous referee, lots of fouls, people crying conspiracy still to this day game. I was there covering that. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter 11, you've got Eastern Conference Finals game six, June 2012. 
Uh, that was Heat over Celtics. LeBron going for 45 and 15. I covered that one for the New York Times. And then and not, not only that, Howard, but I yeah. believe I referenced your lead in that in that chapter <laughs> because uh, it was a really good lead. Thank you. Uh, and uh, and that was uh, uh, and I was at that game as well. And you could just you just had a sense that you just watched something different that that, you know, I- things were going to be different after that. I got, I got, I, I get chills still thinking about that game. I remember that night. Like, I don't remember yeah. details of game. I don't know about you, but like a lot of the, the details fade. I can remember a feeling or I can remember a moment sometimes, but a lot of times it's just more of like, oh, I remember where I was sitting within the press section and, or maybe something that happened post game and the interviews or whatever. But it's that night. I just remember thinking like, holy shit. And I, you yeah. know, We've all seen some stuff after you've covered the league for a while. That was that one was really memorable. Um, and then it was really funny. So my last year covering uh, the NBA and the Knicks for the New York Times, I had been off the Knicks the 12-13 season covering the Nets, but they pulled me back onto the Knicks midseason because they were having this, this kind of renaissance, the Knicks. My first game back on the beat is the last chapter of your book, which was Steph going for 54 and hitting 11 of 13 threes. That was your Knicks first game back on the Knicks beat? Back my first game back wow. on the Knicks beat after a few months on the Nets, uh, and then turned out to be my last season on the Knicks and for the New York Times at all because I left for Bleacher Report later later that year. Uh, so there you go, the last three games of your book um, I did cover. I've this this certifies me as old. <laughs> well, well, you know this, the Steph game wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long, <laughs> yeah. But it's all right. But listen, you've covered the history of the NBA in twelve games, and I was at three of twelve, which I believe works out to twenty five percent. And it should have been, as I say, a fourth game, it which would have worked out to uh, <laughs> a third of them. So <laughs> um, that's something. All right. So let me um, let me hit some of these that are really you. You alluded to the Kareem one. First major trade request by a superstar. This all the way back in the seventies, and of course, uh, that is the reference point for everyone else now. When we talk about oh, you know, stars don't want to stay with their teams anymore. No, it's been going on for a very long time. Yeah. Um, the chapter after that, April fourteenth, nineteen eighty four, game between the Kansas City Kings and the Houston Rockets. The significance of that game, I think, also should resonate quite a bit in today's NBA. What? Why was that game chosen? Yeah, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, the 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 Kings at the time, the Kansas City Kings, were fighting for the final playoff spot in the West. Uh, Houston uh, really had nothing to lose. Uh, they were playing for something much different. They were playing for uh, what they hoped would be uh, the number one pick, or or was going to be one of the top two picks. The way that it worked at the time was. The, the worst team in each conference, they had a coin flip, uh, and 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 the, the the winner of the coin flip got the the first pick, and and the loser got the second pick. So uh, it was uh, uh, it was down to the Clippers and the Rockets, but the Clippers, uh, their pick had belonged to Philadelphia. So you know, on the final night of the season, you have this situation where Houston, which was twenty and twenty six to start February. Then went nine and twenty-seven to close out the year. Uh, the, the Rockets had been tanking. I mean, that it was it was just blatant. I talked to Pat Williams, who was the GM of of the Sixers at the time. Again, they had the Clippers pick, so they thought you know Clippers were fifteen and thirty at the start of February. You know, Pat Williams is thinking I'm going to get you know either Elijah one or he told me that they were serious about taking Michael Jordan if they had wound up with the first pick or the second pick, and he was still there. Um, that that that. That was how this was supposed to play out. The Clippers were supposed to be the worst team in the league, uh, and 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 the Sixers would get their pick, uh, and Michael Jordan would be 
a Philadelphia 76er, except that the Houston Rockets went 9-27. and They lost eight of their last nine games. They were winning this final game on April 14th against Kansas City. Uh, and, and Bill Fitch, the coach, all of a sudden starts making some weird substitutions, and they have like a 12-point lead, uh, and all of a sudden it's gone in the fourth quarter. They wind up losing the game. They get the number one pick, and of course we know what happens. They take Olajuwon. Uh, um, you get uh, Sam Bowie going to uh, uh, Portland, and Michael Jordan winds up in Chicago. Uh, Philadelphia, as their consolation prize, they wind up fifth, uh, and they take, of course, Charles Barkley. Um, so, you know, that, that that set up, you know, all these Hall of Fame players uh, for where they would be uh, just with that one game. You know, if, 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 if Houston wins that game, everything's much different. Uh, and, and, and the other thing that comes out of that is what they call the rocket rule. Because it's clear that they had tanked. David Stern came up with and really jammed this through. A lot of, a lot of GMs did not like the way all this unfolded. David Stern came up with the lottery system right then and there. And, and, and in July, so after the season ends in July, they have a meeting in Salt Lake City and, and he, he rams through, uh, the lottery system. Uh, and that becomes how we do the draft from there. So that game, you know, like, like I say, it's, 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 it's kind of a nothing game, but it winds up being pretty huge in terms of how everything plays out. And that's what I love about the book, Sean, and, and much credit to you for basically deciding, like, I'm going to drill down. I'm going to find, in this case, this sliding door moment where it didn't just, you know, lead to indirectly the lottery or somewhat directly the lottery, um, something that is now, of course, a staple of of the league and of uh, their system and of trying to create some sense of fairness and parity and equity. But you know, the game itself has all these other sliding door moments within it in terms of where everybody might have been drafted that year in what was one of the all-time great drafts. So um, it's it's a lot of fun to, to kind of see it recontextualized that way because I, I don't, I, you know, most of us, even if we were alive for it, um, you, you just don't remember it that way. And it's only kind of through the prism of, of hindsight that you go, oh, wow, well, there were a lot of implications from this otherwise meaningless game yeah yeah there's you kind of look back on on the way things played out as being inevitable but when you go back and you surround yourself but with uh the media at the time and magazines and the newspapers and and what was being written and said at the time and you talk to people who were there obviously you get a real sense that uh you know that that what we now kind of look back on as inevitable certainly was not i mean uh, you know this this this, there was a lot of different ways i mean at, at one point philadelphia was was pretty confident that they would get Michael Jordan, uh, and and they were shopping Dr. J. I mean, they had a trade lined up that would have sent Dr. J to the Clippers, uh, and 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 they wound up pulling off of it. Some of it leaked, uh, and there was a great outcry in Philadelphia, so they pulled off of it. Uh, but you know that that was that was something that was going on as well. It's 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 interesting to think all the things that could have happened. No doubt, no doubt. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. So you could have chosen (laughs) dozens, hundreds, I don't know, of Michael Jordan games. But the one you picked for the book is April 3rd, 1988, a game between the Bulls and Pistons. Why was this the MJ game to include? Yeah, the the, the Pistons had some success against the Bulls that season. Uh, But what they did not have success doing was stopping Michael Jordan. Uh, it was clear that this was just a, a, a as good a defensive team uh, as as the Pistons were. Uh, Michael Jordan just had their number, and, and I believe he had 59 points uh, on this Easter Sunday game. It was on national TV, uh, and and he just absolutely killed them. Um, what happened after that game? Um, and it depends. There's there's some depends who you ask. Some 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 guys at the time say it was it was a different game, uh, but you know Brendan Sir was a uh, an assistant, he pointed to this game, and, and Chuck Daly has uh, or had uh, uh, at one point uh, as well. He pointed to that game as the one where they sat down and said, we've got to change the way we do things with this guy. Um, and and that's where they invented the Jordan rules. And and the Jordan rules were important because not only – it's important in, in, in a lot of ways because it changed the way that the Pistons approached things. Obviously, they were already a physical team. They went all in. They went. They went just all in. Anybody comes in the lane, we're going to smack them. We're going to knock them to the floor. We're going to hit them after the shot. You know, we're going to. We're just going to. We're going to be the bad boys. That's that's sort of where that comes from. Uh, and then, of course, that sets up the whole 1990s. The way the way basketball is played in the 1990s, where it really does get ugly. <laughs> you know, where that is. That is. Uh, you, you know how the game is played. Uh, so, so there's that track. And then there's also the track with Michael Jordan, you know, physically 
uh, starts to feel, you know, what the Pistons are doing and, and other teams do it to him. Uh, and he feels like, you know, that's when he gets Tim Grover. And that's when he says, uh, you know, I've got to be uh, a different cat physically here. I've got to be, I've got to do some, some different stuff. Uh, and that's where he really, you know, dedicates himself uh, to, to becoming the Michael Jordan uh, who, who wins, uh, you know, six championships. So, uh, you know, that game, uh, because because Chuck Daly, you know, was so frustrated with their inability to stop Michael Jordan, uh, you know, that that set up the NBA for the 90s and it also set up uh, Michael Jordan, what he would become. How did Michael respond in the moment? Like, what was the, if, if you know, what was the post-game Jordan commentary like after getting the shit kicked out of him? Yeah, you know, I mean, when that started happening, yeah, I mean, he, he, he would say um, one of his quotes was that's not basketball, you know, and, 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 you know, he did a lot of complaining. Uh, obviously they would get Phil Jackson as, as, as their coach. And, and, you know, how, you know, how Phil is with the refs and, and, and all that. And, and, and the, the, the well-chosen words that he would have in, in terms of that. Uh, so there, there was a lot of complaining, but I think uh, in the end, what Michael Jordan, no matter what he said, he knew he had to actually do something physically different. Uh, so yeah, he did a lot of complaining about it, and 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 you can go and look at the quotes. I mean, he 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 pretty much said, you know, that's not basketball what they do. I mean, he's not wrong, <laughs> right? No, and uh, you know, I mean, the '90s were, uh, you know, they, they there were some great teams, but man, it was a hard game to watch at times. Uh, some of the things that went on. Yeah, it's it's wild because you know, it, during that period of time, I'm still, you know, I'm a Californian by by birth, and you know, I'm I'm still out there for the entire '90s, um, and so yeah, the Bulls from a distance. If you weren't a, a hardcore fan of any other team, everybody was a Bulls fan by default in the '90s. Everybody loved to watch Michael and Scotty, and nobody, probably outside of Detroit, enjoyed what the Pistons were doing. Nobody outside of New York enjoyed what the Knicks were doing. And of course, I've now been in in New York for almost two decades, and the way that the '90s are glorified as this this you know utopian version of of the NBA by certain fan bases specifically, certainly New York, certainly Detroit, and I think there are others who are kind of nostalgic for it. I mean, I think some players who grew up watching that still kind of say like, "Ah, oh, that was the real NBA," you know, that they liked the physical version of it. Um, but I mean, it, no, it was not enjoyable for most. No fans i don't think and i don't think it was good for the game there's a reason the nba you know tried to evolve a little bit take out not all the physicality but some of it and, and crack down on flagrants and then eventually change up other rules that allowed the game to kind of flow a little bit more um it's an interesting period of the nba it it's different and, and i think it can be enjoyable in its own right but i don't think it's as aesthetically pleasing uh, well, and, and we saw that after michael jordan retired like now once he was gone you know, there were some years that that you obviously had the the, the, the Lakers run, uh, but you know, you I, I'm pretty sure you were at the 2003 Finals, which was the Nets and the uh, and the Spurs, and you might remember, uh, geez, one of the games, I think it was Game Three or Game Four, it was like 78 to 69, like that was the NBA. I remember Greg Popovich saying we just set basketball back 15 years, uh, and uh, and 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 he was right. I mean, it was just ugly, ugly stuff. Uh, yeah. Once Michael Jordan wasn't there anymore, it was kind of like, this is a tough thing to sell. Yeah, yeah. They they had some things to fix. Um, this is a really bad segue. Speaking of fix, <laughs> terrible, yeah, like terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible segue. I do not believe that, by the way. I'll just put that on the record first. Um, 
So May 2002, Western Conference Finals, uh, Lakers and Kings. This was an epic freaking series, by the way, which I think now gets overshadowed in some corners by the Game 6 officiating controversies and everything that went with it. But Lakers-Kings was awesome. Um, there were a lot of moments. This is also the series that includes uh, Vlade Divac tipping out the miss by it was uh, Kobe misses Shaq misses the putback. Vlade Divac tips four, it out. Yeah. Robert Ory, yeah, just scoops it up. Says, "Oh, look, a, a three a three point uh, opportunity." Drains it to hit that one, um, and of course the the Lakers eventually win that in overtime of Game Seven in Sacramento to go to their third straight finals, and that's when they uh, they beat the Nets for the the three peat. Um, I mean, listen, this, this is a game that people remember for all the wrong reasons and the controversy, the conspiracy theories. Tim Donaghy keeps dredging it up uh, as a way to try to paint everybody else as crooks because he is. And so he thinks uh, the way to uh, defend himself is by saying, oh, the whole thing is is corrupt. And he's preying on the, the, the uh, ideas and concerns and suspicions people have, have long had. We don't need to necessarily go down all that road. But, Sean, you you decide only on 12 games. What about Lakers-Kings? As epic as that series was, and clearly it's a key moment in the Shaq-Kobe era, um, why that game with all that is wrapped up in it? Yeah, you know, and and, and I think that it, it, it really sort of solidified in a lot of people's minds. It was this perception that, uh, that David Stern was, uh, you know, altering, that he was directing, that he was, um, you know, pushing things a certain way. Um, and I actually start off that chapter talking about the Bucks, uh, in 2001 against Philadelphia. Uh, and they had many of these same complaints. Um, you know, George Carl had talked about it too, uh, uh, in that series in 2001. He went back to when he was coaching in, uh, in, in Seattle and they lost a series. Uh, to uh, to Charles Barkley and the Sixers uh, and uh, and the Suns um, to to get to the finals and 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 George Carl pointed out all these numbers about uh, so you know this is something that leading up to that game there had already been this perception uh, and 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 I think that that game uh, really solidified in a lot of people's heads I mean Ralph Nader uh, wrote a letter about it. <laughs> you had Ralph Nader getting involved. Uh, uh, to, yes, uh, yes, uh, famous NBA fan Ralph Nader. <laughs> I'm not sure Ralph Nader could have named five NBA players at the time he wrote that letter, but suddenly he, he decided this was a big consumer issue. Major respect for Ralph Nader and what he's done uh, in this country over the course of his lifetime and career, but that was um, uh, maybe a little opportunism. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, you had like like Michael Wilbon saying, you know, this is the worst referee game and, and, and anybody who – uh, you know, suspects the NBA of something, you know, this is the kind of thing that is going to confirm it to them. So, yeah, you know, I, I do think that that game uh, was important in terms of uh, in terms of solidifying that perception. And, and you know, the league then did take steps afterwards and, and, and did try to be or has tried to be much. I don't think you hear that as much anymore. And I think it's in part because the league has tried to be more transparent about its officiating. Uh, more transparent about how these, uh, uh, about how calls are made and how referees are graded uh, and things like that. Now you're still going to get, uh, you know, well Scott Foster doing this, and, and you still get that. But I think it's it's not the same as it was 20 years ago, where uh, where you know there was a, a significant number. You know, I, I'm sure you had it too. Like you'd go on radio shows and 
And that's what people were talking about is, is you know, is this thing fixed or not? Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard as a sports writer to, uh, to, to make that judgment, uh, you know, especially if this is the sport you're covering. Uh, but, uh, but, but it was very much a, a pervasive thought at the time. And I think that game uh, sort of symbolized that. You're right that, that you know, Tim Donnelly is, has, has made, uh, made a lot of hay out of that game uh, since then. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it really was a reflection of of the thought process at the time. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge, or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum! And how you get the most out of select can't miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Sean, I mean, you've probably heard this too or seen this too. Donaghy has made so much hay out of it and preyed on the suspicions about that game and about NBA officiating and NBA conspiracies in general so often that people will now say, oh, you know, you remember that Tim Donaghy game where he fixed the game, the, the, the Lakers right. and Kings. He wasn't even on that. He, he didn't that. work that game. <laughs> was, no, right. It was, it was three uh, of the referees. It was, it was Pavetta, Ted Bernhardt, uh, Bernhard, Pavetta, Pavetta, and um, Delaney. And Bob Delaney, yes. Yep. Uh, Bob Delaney, uh, former undercover cop, and never, yeah, yeah, certainly not the kind of person who was going to be um, involved in referee conspiracies, I don't think. Right. Um, nor, nor do I think that Ted Bernhardt or Dick Bavetta were either. But Dick Bavetta was always one of those figures back then. Referees, of course, were much more colorful in that era. Bavetta, chief among them. And I think a lot of that led to, I think, or contributed to how people perceived the refs as like, 
a force in their own right. And I think it's part of why the NBA now prefers that referees show no personality yeah. whatsoever on the court. Um, it's a it, like it was a different time. But yes, people now now believe because of the conflation of all these things and Donaghy pounding on this this all the time that somehow he was part of that and he and that he's the one who made sure that the Lakers won the game. He wasn't there. Um, but conspiracy theories have all like, you know, you could do an entire book just on NBA conspiracy theories, right? Like this, this league, for whatever reason, spawns more of these than any other. Uh, none of them have a, a, a lick of evidence behind them, but people believe them based on suspicion, based on perceptions, based on whatever. And back then you pointed it out, like the coaches fueled this every time a small market team lost and there was even a hint of like, well, we didn't get it to the line as many times. Then George Carl or somebody is saying it's because the league doesn't want us to win. And that yeah. was such a co- – that's why David Stern was constantly finding coaches. That's why we have all these fines in the NBA for speaking out, um, complaining about officiating. It's not so much that they're trying to protect the refs from being criticized. It's more that coaches, especially sometimes players, but mostly coaches were politicking so much – back in the 90s and early 2000s. And it's corrosive because it then gives fans reason to believe, well, if the coach says the refs screwed them and maybe it's part of some conspiracy to favor the big markets over the small markets, well, then then I, I, the average fan, I'm going to believe it. And so like that's why the league tamped down because it's just, it's uh, there's nothing, there's no proof behind it. It's just suspicion. But when it comes from voices of authority like coaches, it, it starts to kind of take root out there. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly Rick Adelman after that game, you know, he came out in his press conference and uh, you know all but said that yeah, the the refs the refs uh, wanted there to be a game seven. You know, he didn't say it in so many words. Vlade Divac said said much the same thing. Uh, but but you're right. Yeah, the more that the more that those things and and you know we talked about Phil Jackson a little mentioned earlier. You know, he was a master of that, right? I mean, oh, yes. he was a master <laughs> of uh, of working the refs in such a way uh, in game five. So that he got a lot of calls in Game Six, like he was just with that. Um, and, and, and that was a that was one of the, that was a peak time for that Sean. That series in particular, Adelman and Phil Jackson. Every single game, whichever team had lost, immediately went to the uh, play to the refs card, and we got screwed by the fouls last night. And like telling you know, I know because I was covering the Lakers. They're telling us on the side, go go back and look at these three plays. You know, there's because there's yeah. like in game. Five, I think it was when the when the uh, the Kings won, and the ball had gone out of bounds off of Chris Webber, but they called it off of Derek Fisher, and that sets up, I think, the, the Mike Bibby shot or something, if I'm remembering correctly. But there's a lot of those, and I remember the Lakers flagging like, "Oh, watch, they screwed up these three or you know, it's they were politicking the whole way. Both teams were. It was going back and forth. It's part of why that series was so much fun because everybody was yeah. talking so much shit <laughs> yeah. about each other yeah. about the refs. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, Shaq, you know, as you know, he was the hardest guy in the world to, to ref. Uh, and, and Vlade Divac was the second hardest guy because, you know, anything, you know, he was the, he originated the flop. I mean, he yes. was like, he, he mastered that. Uh, you know, he's one of the reasons that we wound up having flopping rules was, uh, was Vlade was so good at it. Yeah. And nobody talks about the flip side of it in this. So this is like, by the way, I, I'll just be clear. I don't believe in a conspiracy. I'm not going to defend what the referees did that night. I've never gone back to rewatch the game to see just how egregious some of these were. In real time, it's hard because I'm on deadline. I'm writing the whole time that I'm covering the game, right? So you're as things are happening, you're scribbling, you're typing, you're whatever. I, I have no clue. I've never rewatched it. Uh, I should one of these days. 
So I don't know. I'm agnostic on even whether the ref- whether the referees screwed it up. But to your point, Sean, Shaq was incredibly difficult to referee, to officiate, period, because of his physicality and how strong he was. Vlade was absolutely a flopper. And there were definitely some questionable things that happened in the course of that series in both directions. Um, and as I always say, Game 7 in Sacramento, the Kings yeah. had every opportunity. You know, I, I, it's funny. I talked, yeah, I talked with Scott Pollard about that. He said the same thing. He said, look, no matter, no matter how you feel about Game 6, we screwed this up. You know, we, we, we shit the bed. We went back to Sacramento, Game 7. Our, that building, you remember how loud that building used to get? You know, we had everything, and and we shit the bed in Game Seven. That's 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 what, that's how Paul put it. Uh, you know, he said, "I don't worry much about Game Six. It's Game Seven that bothers me." Yeah. So the last chapter of the book is kind of self-explanatory. We uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but Steph going for fifty-four hits eleven of 13 threes, and I, you know, in a lot of ways, really kicks off the three-point era that we're in, and also kicks off the Steph era that we're in. Um, and. Uh, that one, we don't need to go to go down deep on, on that one, but I want to just bring it up because so people know, like the last game is from nine years ago. So it's recent history, but it's just long enough ago to remind us that the game didn't always look quite this way. <laughs> and Steph wasn't yeah. always this supernova. Um, anyway, so the, the, the 12 games, they're all fascinating in their own right. They all have an importance in their own right. You also have uh, Dirk at the Nike Hoop Summit in, in 1998. So that kind of stands in for the international evolution of the game. Uh, there's just a bunch of really great stuff. Um, so before we go, we'll talk a little NBA. But again, people, uh, the history of the NBA in, in 12 games uh, by Sean Devaney is uh, in bookstores, I believe, November 1st on sale. That's right. Yep. Probably uh, in all the usual online places that people uh, right. can go look for it, too. Uh, so before I let you go, um, a couple things just around the NBA. So you're you're in Springfield, Massachusetts, as I mentioned earlier. You're a New England guy. You came up on the Celtics. Uh, give me your just snapshot impression of where the Celtics stand today, a week out from the Ime Udoka news and his suspension. Um, where do you... Th- think it leaves this team as they kind of pick up the pieces, get over the initial shock of this, uh, you know, just the news and the, the, whatever the scandal aspect of it, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, I, I never know how to project on these things. There's a human element here, but they're going to be on their third coach in three years because of this. Udoka was such a key figure for them last year in, in galvanizing this team and them going to the finals uh, Sean, you know that franchise really well. Uh, give me your your quick thoughts on where this leaves them and on the decision that the Celtics made. You know, I thought under Brad Stevens, you know, you mentioned third coach in three years. So under Brad Stevens, one of the problems that they had was that they were a pretty fragile bunch. They 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 really didn't. Brad was reluctant to call people out publicly. Um, you know, so you get. Doka in and 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 he's the complete opposite. He will absolutely take it to the mat. Uh, and and I thought by the end of last year, uh, they were a much tougher team than they were. You know when they were blowing twenty point leads. I think it happened four or five times early on in the season. Um, and and I thought Ma really toughened them up. Now we're going to see <laughs> we're going to see whether you know did did he really is that is that something that's going to carry over? Um, you know that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be a real test. Uh, is just is this team mentally tough enough to put all that stuff aside? I think it worked out well for them that you know. I mean, obviously, twenty of this stuff happened, but the fact that it all came out right before media day, they came out, 
uh, you know, they kind of said, well, I don't know. You know, nobody tells us anything on media day and, and they're probably not going to get asked about it much more. You know, there's just, it's not going to be, if they can come out and play well early in the season, it's going to fade pretty quickly, you know, e- even as, as much of an earthquake as it was when it happened. So, um, you know, I think that, that this is going to be a real test of their toughness. Uh, but, you know, I think that uh, certainly at this point, I think they've handled it about as well as they could have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about some of the things that the guys said when, you know, that about, well, you know, we don't know anything. We know as much as you guys do. I don't buy that. Um, I don't either. But, but I do think that, I do think that, you know, I, I do think that addressing it uh, as quickly as they were able to, uh, and now just, just getting right into training camp and right into preseason, I think that's going to be good for them as far as putting it behind them. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, I guess to some extent, this will be uh, the latest test of just how important is the coach uh, to yeah. a team, right? Like once you're established and you've got an identity and you've got high level talent, finals level talent, which they do. Okay, how much does the, does does a coach matter? Because we debate that sometimes in this league, right? Is uh, how much is it about the talent and how much is it about the voice and the the schematics and pulling guys together? And Yudoka really pulled this this team together and got them broke. You know, they got them uh, got them to break through in a way that they didn't under Brad. Um, can Joe Mazzula just kind of pick up the baton and, and keep going in the same direction? Uh, the bigger news for them or the bigger concern immediately on the court's going to be Robert Williams. You broke the story that Robert Williams was going to have knee surgery again, and he's out for a bit. Um, he's obviously had repeated concerns with that knee and an injuries period in his young career. Uh, where do you think that leaves them? Do you th- Maddox and I have talked about whether they should be going out and picking up Dwight Howard or DeMarcus Cousins or somebody. Um, where do you think this leaves them? You know, I think that they, they will pick up somebody if they feel like the guys that if they feel like what they're doing, they're doing something interesting. They're doing something that, you know, really happens a lot in football, right? Where you have position battles, you know, for those, for those last roster spots. Uh, and they've, they've kind of decided that, you know, for their last two, three roster spots, they're going to have, you know, all these guys come in and basically, you know, Denzel Valentine, uh, you know, guys like that coming to Justin Jackson, uh, coming in and, and, and trying to earn a spot. Um, as things progress, I mean, right now, Luke Cornett is going to play a pretty significant role. I think if they get to the end of November and they say Luke Cornett cannot handle this, then you'll, you'll, you'll see them, uh, you know, seeing what else is out there. Um, they're very conscious about the, about the luxury tax. I mean, that's the, the they're going to go with 14 guys. Um, you know, they're, they're way over the luxury tax. Uh, they're sort of in the situation that the Warriors were last year where if they sign a guy for, at a minimum, uh, you know, if it's two and a half million bucks, they're going to pay, you know, almost 15 million in, in luxury tax. And, and, and so they want to try to avoid that or put it off as long as they can. Uh, and, uh, and, and if that means that, that we get a lot of Luke Cornett in November, you know, we'll see if the guy's done it. You know, we'll see. Uh, or, or Kevin Gilly, who's there, who's on a two way contract, but he could get moved over. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to be looking to sign one of those guys. Unless we get to December and 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 it's obvious that they need somebody. This this uh, raises the age old question: How much Luke Cornett do you have to see before you realize it's worth spending an extra fifteen million dollars in luxury taxes? I believe that's one of the old age old NBA quandaries. 
Um, I think this is Luke Cornett's eighth team. So there's eight other teams that have answered that question. Already. I saw him. He, he had a he had a turn with the Knicks here in, in New York. Yep. So I saw him uh, briefly here. Uh, we were ju- we were both judges for the NBA's hackathon, which is when they're they're. <laughs> You know they're getting all the 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 the, the data nerds in and to, to do their thing. Uh, so I met Luke there, very nice guy. Uh, yeah. Not sure I want him as my heavy minutes center on a plausible contender in Boston. But you know we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know give him a chance. Let's see. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, Shaw. This has been great, man. Appreciate you coming on. The book is fantastic. Again, the history of the NBA in twelve games. Uh, people go find that uh, at uh, book stores everywhere on November first, or online in all the usual places. See, uh, go find Sean's work, of course, at Heavy dot com. Uh, Sean, this has been great, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Howard. Sure, we'll uh, catch up down the road. Absolutely. Okay, that's it for today's show. My thanks again to Sean Devaney. Thanks to our producer, Shelby Royston. And thank you all for listening. Remember, you can hear Chris Mannix and me every Tuesday on The Crossover with all the latest NBA chatter. And then on Fridays, it's me and a guest. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Crossover wherever you get your podcasts. And hit me with your feedback on Twitter, at Howard Beck. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.